You join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And just before you joined us, we were talking about boxing. Ah, left uppercut, right hook, jab, dodge, weave. My natural. <laughs> you are, aren't you? Did you ever do any? No, only in the, only in the garden with my mate, you know. I did. I did. I, I was a boxer. Uh, really? Well, I, well, I say I was a boxer. Um, well, just the one bout. Mm-hmm. And uh, the big gloves went on. Uh, I was prepared. I was absolutely thrilled to put the boxing gloves on. Featherweight? Well, I don't know. More paperweight in those days. <laughs> um, I was thrilled to get the gloves on. And my opponent was all ready. And I think he'd been prepared more than I was because it was his gloves. Um, mm. And uh, we stepped into the ring. When I say ring, it was his bedroom between two beds. Uh, okay. And there were a couple of other mates there. And there was only one punch, which hit me <laughs> square between the eyes. I went down on one of the beds and never got up again. That was it. That was the end of my boxing career. But I think if I'd stuck at it... Well... After such a salubrious start, it's a shame you stopped, really, isn't it? Because I could have been talking to the champion of the world, <laughs> Richard the Lugger Lewis. Well, Lugger, most definitely. <laughs> I hated it. I, I absolutely hated it. But he'd been given two pairs of boxing gloves, I think, for Christmas. Uh, and he needed people to beat up. Which, I mean, he's a pacifist. He's, you know, he's not the sort of fellow now that you, you'd meet and say, ah, there's a man who did some boxing in his no. time um, you know the nose has still got a bridge on it and uh, he, he you know he, he looks like he spent most of his, his life uh, in academia which indeed he has but he smacked me clean between the eyes uh, touched uh, maybe the bridge of my nose I went down like a like a piece of lead bang mm. yeah I can imagine um, my friend uh, for Christmas last year bought his son one of those what are they called like you know the the things on a springy stand, yes, like the like the punch bag, but it's not yeah. a punch bag, and it's a springy thing on a stand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so they unwrapped it, set it up on Christmas Day, and he said, "Right, I'll show you how to do it." He threw a good, solid right hand jab at it, and it went back, came straight forward, and <laughs> broke his nose. <laughs> Off he went. A and E on Christmas Day. Well, you should never, you should never be around anything with the word Lonsdale on it, really, should you? No. Unless, no. unless supervised at yeah, all, yeah. at all, all times. You can just imagine his wife, can't you? Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> <laughs> I've never been in a boxing gym. I've been in quite a lot of environments in my life, but I've never been in a boxing gym. I've been in a in a in a couple as a reporter. Oh, right. Um, they have a they have a very um, unique atmosphere. Yeah. But I tell you what is an even more unique atmosphere. When I was younger, do you remember uh, people around the West Country will remember Glenn Catley? Glenn who Catley, was a middleweight boxer of some repute. Yes, he went to the same school as I did, a few years behind me. I have to mm. say. Yeah, yeah, lovely man and a proper good boxer. And I managed to uh, I can't remember how it happened now, but I managed to get ringside. Um, seats at one of his bouts that was a thing that was yeah. that's an intense uh, furious atmosphere of uh, of adrenaline and testosterone and yeah quite a thing I've never seen it live um, the closest I've ever got um, was having a couple of meetings with Frank Bruner oh right 
yeah, uh, and, and a little while after Frank was at his peak, he was looking for something to replace being in the ring, and he went through a bad patch mm. because boxing had been central to everything that he did and everything that he was. And amongst the things that he did was accept the offer to become the referee on the revival of a much-loved British and European television show called It's a Knockout. It's a knockout. Here come the Belgians! <laughs> Which bizarrely was the invention of... Do you know who invented It's a Knockout? No, I don't. No? No. Charles de Gaulle, President de Gaulle of France. No. Invented... Yes, he did. He came up with the idea of Jeux Sans Frontier, or uh. as it's translated, Games Without Frontiers as a way of bringing Europeans closer together rather than running up vast armies and bombing the hell out of each other <laughs> every 25 years or so. What was his thinking? That he would invent this ridiculous competition and European countries would spend so much time laughing at each other, they'd think, well, we can't possibly be bombing those people. They're I'm not, hilarious. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure whether he came up with the idea of uh, putting people in great big foam suits giving them clown shoes and asking them to go up a greasy pole. I'm not sure he went into that much detail. I think his idea was that Europe generally would be involved in all kinds of games that would bring people closer together. Okay. That was, that, that was the idea. Everyone could laugh at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. just and see that we're all human. Look at us all being wallies. <laughs> so each country would have local or national competitions and here it was called it's a knockout and then everyone the 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 local towns who won through would eventually mm. represent great britain in jeux en frontier goodness me what the pride you must feel but, well, representing indeed. your country in jeux en frontier <laughs> uh, and as i said the, the games usually included getting dunked in a lake with enormous feet on mm. or climbing a greasy pole dressed in a giant foam Norwegian baker costume, that kind, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, and like all good things, it ran its course. So when the viewing figures dropped to unacceptable levels, which probably in those days would have been about 12 million. Yeah. Oh, it's dipping cool. between 12 million now. People are getting fed yeah. up with it. Yeah. So at that point, it was binned until the 1990s. Wasn't there a comeback? With, well, they, there was. With Prince Edward. It's it's a royal knockout. Yes, they did a it's a royal knockout, which is the kind of uh, in between stage between the end of it's a knockout right. and when they brought it back for Channel Five, which was scouting around looking for kind of family friendly things to do, uh, and the it's a royal knockout. Yes, they uh, Princess Anne was involved. Prince it was all part of Prince Edward's idea that he wanted to be a media mogul. Gone mm. well for him. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily <laughs> the stepping stone on the uh, the yellow brick road to success. Mm. Um, his production company produced It's a Royal Knockout, so he went around knocking on the doors of Buckingham Palace saying, who's in? Yeah. Uh, and I think it was uh, Andrew Fergie and Princess Anne okay. um, dressed up as princes and princesses, I think. Uh, I don't remember them putting on the big feet or climbing the greasy pole. Uh, about 10 years after that, along comes Channel 5. And um, I'd been doing some work for uh, a company who had the, the wheeze of bringing back It's a Knockout. Mm -hmm. I was nothing to do 
with the revival at all. But because um, I'd been involved in something else that they were doing, I got invited along, which was which was quite nice because contracts had been signed and giant foam Norwegian bakers costumes were brought out from storage. It's a knockout was back on the road, and uh, they said, "Do you want to come and see it?" And I can't remember where it was that um, we were told to assemble, but it was a big field full of people. And so I packed the family into the car, and out of the car we got into this field full of people. And my daughter was just a baby, I remember that. My son, about five or six. And because I got backstage access, they, of course, were filled with wonder at all the colourful costumes and the outside broadcast gear. And Frank Bruner, who was the referee. Yeah. And when I say referee, I mean, he was the fellow who stood in the ring and people say, Frank! And he would blow a whistle, and then the yep. real referee was kind of just behind him, dressed in mufti. And, <laughs> and, and, but Frank was the front man, so he was the beard for the referee. He, and he had definitely had to laugh for the yeah. job. Oh, right? not, right? oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And Frank, because I'd met him a couple of times um, through other things on the telly, he walks past and he sees me and he comes over. And Frank is lovely. Frank mm. is a man mountain, but... He's absolutely lovely. This is the man who'd been in the ring with Mike Tyson and seriously worried him. Mm. And then, of course, he went on to win the greatest title in boxing. So here he is, uh, and he's knelt down, and he's talking to my son, shaking hands with him, and he's saying, what's your name, son? And he said, Christopher. Oh, Christopher. Ooh. And Christopher put his hand into Frank Bruno's hand, and it's like like a a finger in another hand. It's just huge. Uh, so they're, they're getting on famously, Frank Bruno and my six-year-old son, Christopher. And then he gets called away because it's time for him to be the referee. So we go and sit down and we watch the proceedings and, and off they go and do it to knock out. And to be quite honest, it was a load of old tat even then. It <laughs> Surely not. It really, it really <laughs> was. However, just about everybody there enjoyed themselves. It was a bit old hat. But mm. there we are. Uh, so afterwards, as the people disperse, I think, well, I'll, I'll just go and say goodbye to the producers because it was a very nice family day out and, you know, the sun had shone and, and drinks had been provided. Yeah. Uh, and as, as I'm saying goodbye, so Frank walks past again. Okay. Looks at my boy and goes, Hey, Christopher, how you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> now, for me, the idea that the great Frank Bruno has remembered my son's name yeah. was something to behold. It really was a cherished memory. Absolutely. So that, that's very special for me. But um, then the great moment came for me because as we were walking away, Chris, my son, six years old, only knows Frank from his It's a Knockout refereeing role. Okay, so he's no idea that he's champion of the world. Well, been in with the hardest man in boxing, and he says to me, "Dad, Frank Bruno was famous for something else, wasn't he?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, he was the world heavyweight champion." And Christopher, without blinking, looked at me and said, "How heavy was he?" <laughs> There's one thing I do know about going to the boxing. It's that an essential part of the evening is a drink. So, what have you got for me? Oh, oh, you want to dive straight in, do you? 
Okay. Uh, uh, I will offer you today. How do you feel? See, I, I must admit, I went looking for the spiciest drink I could find. The spiciest? Yes. Okay. The one that um, would blow your socks off. Right. And apparently, it's something called a, a Vata Loco. Um, it claims to be the hottest cocktail ever made. Mm. It involves seven different kinds of chilies. Ooh. It will blow your ears off your head. If you're a fan of spice, it's times a thousand. Mm -hmm. If you want to scare your friends, put one of these in front of it. This is the drink <laughs> that you have to sign a waiver oh before you can drink it. <laughs> Which is a great PR stunt, isn't it? You know, the drink that is so... So spicy. You have to sign a waiver before you can drink it. And the waiver, in part, reads... I am aware that partaking in this activity can result in serious tearing of the eyes, a <laughs> severe burning sensation on the tongue, bright red colouring of the face, smoke coming out of the ears, and possibly <laughs> fire shooting out of the mouth. <laughs> I understand, however, that drinking the hottest drink on earth will make me instantly cooler than anyone who hasn't tried it, which is a lovely line, isn't it? Yeah. The hottest drink on earth will make me cooler than anyone who hasn't tried it. And there are, I mean, I'm not going to read you all the, all, all the uh, ingredients here, but I mean, every other line is either pepper or chili. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one uh, type of chili uh, is generally plenty, isn't it? But what I don't understand, and I've never understood, but I'm a man who likes a curry. Mm -hmm. I know this about you. I remember going for a curry thing with you in Chipping Sudbury there. Oh, and, gosh. Um, the, I, I, I didn't mind a curry at the time, but I wasn't an experienced curry eater. And uh, out came the poppadoms to start with, mm. with the mango chutney, mm. the red stuff. What's that? The red stuff? Uh, like oh, um, uh, the coconut flavoured yeah. uh, piscum. That's it. And the uh, pickle. Yes. And I merrily tucked into a bit of the pickle with the a bit lime, of the, the lime pickle. I couldn't taste anything else for the rest of the day. That wasn't even the chilies. I never <laughs> go near the chilies. But you had a, a go at the lime pickle, and I remember <laughs> the tongue swollen as though a beard stung it. I made even less sense than usual. <laughs> but, um, but, I, but I'm never a big fan ever of uh, the hottest of hot curries. I, I like it mild. I, you know, I like all the the sensations of all the spices. Mm. I like that, all the wonderful tastes. I've but, gradually uh, worked my way up to a Rogan Josh over the years. Oh, can, well, there you, there you go. I can do a Rogan Josh now. But I, I've never understood the need for some people to eat something that you'll need the fire brigade to put out. There's a, have you seen that documentary series on Netflix? Um, it's like they go around the world filming weird and wonderful challenges like they go to the cheese rolling in Gloucestershire there no I've not seen this uh, and another one is um, the world chilli eating championship uh, okay so they have um, a series of chilies of increasing strength and they sit there I think there's about six or seven contestants just eating the chilies raw and and seeing who can last the longest and uh, I mean you see them go through it's it's pain it's not yeah. Discomfort. It's actual. Yeah. Some people apparently have some sort of chemical uh, composition, which means they are immune to the the pain and discomfort up to a certain level. Anyway, but, no taste buds. Um, yeah, worth watching. Just to, it's one of those you just think 
The well, smaller the chili, the more power. I think that's generally the rule, yeah. Yeah. The Veto or Vato Loco is apparently the spiciest, hottest drink that has ever been made. Can I tempt you? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, as long as I can have a pot of natural yoghurt on standby, I will, I'll try a sip. Yeah, you might need a tanker full of it. <laughs> Stand by, but you'll try us in. Next time we're out uh, near somewhere that shakes a good Veta Loco, <laughs> then I shall make sure that, uh, that you will have the libation that you chose today. Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter, or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. This week, I stumbled across an amazing website, which kept me occupied for a good few minutes. Ah. <laughs> it is called presidentialpetmuseum.com. <laughs> right. Right. So it's one of those invaluable internet resources that you find every so often. And this particular one details all the pets of every president of the United States of America from the first president, who was, of course... Yes. Well, it wasn't George Washington, was it? George Washington. So the president... I can't believe I've got you now. I'm, I can't wait for pub quiz now. I'm just gonna... <laughs> <laughs> this bit from the... <laughs> uh, from George Washington to the present incumbent. So, uh, Washington... Yep. had a collection of various stallions, including some that had been used in the Civil War. He also had a good number of hounds with names such as Mopsy, Sweet Lips, Tipsy, Vulcan, and Drunkard. Ooh. Imagine being out in the park. Drunkard! <laughs> Drunkard! Here, Drunkard! Quite a few would have uh, staggered over, I would imagine. I reckon so. Jefferson had two bear cubs and a mockingbird called Dick. Uh, John Quincy Adams was given an alligator by the Marquis de Lafayette. Thanks, mate. <laughs> That's great. Uh, the, the alligator was kept, apparently, in one of the bathrooms in the White House, uh, occasionally giving quite a nasty shock to visitors who weren't aware. I'm just going to disappear for a number one. Um, Martin Van Buren was given a pair of tiger cubs by the Sultan of Oman. And in an early they example... They grow up, of, don't they? Yes, this is the problem. Yeah. And then uh, in an early example of Congress having a touch more common sense than the president, sound familiar, Van Buren was forced to send the cubs to the zoo. Ah. Quite right, too. Mm -hmm. John Tyler had a canary who was named Johnny Ty. Uh, which unfortunately died shortly after they tried to pair the canary with a mate, only to discover that it too was a male and there was a bit of a scrap. Uh, that didn't go well. So but, Johnny Ty died? Yeah, Johnny Ty passed died. away, I'm afraid. To Ty Johnny died. Ty died. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yes. Roosevelt. Yes, Roosevelt. 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 They were pet lovers, yes. he and his family. And they had many pets, very well known as great animal lovers. So, uh, during their time in the White House, they had snakes, guinea pigs, 
dogs and cats. And then, as the world got to know about his uh, love of animals, diplomatic leaders from around the world began to send exotic animals as gifts. And among them was a hyena named Bill. Now, you might have thought that Congress would have got involved again here no. and sent Bill off to the zoo. But no, it was sent to him by Emperor Menelik of Ethiopia. And uh, according to the captain of the ship that brought the hyena over, it was uh, he said that Bill laughed all the time and uh, warned Roosevelt that he'd certainly have his hands full. They, he wasn't sent off to the zoo. Roosevelt wasn't overly keen. He said that hyenas were cowardly at best. But apparently he did grow quite fond of this particular hyena bill. He was allowed to live in the White House, begging for scraps from the dinner table. And they even taught him tricks. Good Lord. Uh, Trump, by the way, had no pets. I don't know what that says about the man. I think there were a few vipers in the house. Yeah. Uh, but with Biden, um, much loved dog, which sadly is now no more accompany him to the White House. Mm. Um, but I, I think there is something about uh, the dog in the White House, isn't there? I, I know some of them, as you say, had menageries of, the, of animals. Mm. Um, but I think most of them had a dog. The White House dog is a thing. It's like the yeah. Downing Street cat. <laughs> What's his name? Larry the cat. Larry the cat, yeah. Yes, if only he was running things here. Good to follow on Twitter, by the way, Larry the cat. Yes, he is. He's very, he's very perceptive. He's he's got a very obviously his paws when mm. it comes to manipulating a, a a keyboard are very good, and he's very witty as well with it. Mm. You'll get more sense out of Larry the cat than half the cabinet. Pub quiz. Always up for a pub quiz. Um, we're going to go back to a fact or fiction today. So uh, I've got three questions for you. And okay. all you have to do is to tell me whether or not what I'm spouting is fact or fiction. And right. um, the common theme that runs throughout the whole of this is knitting. Oh, well, another area of expertise for me. Indeed. Uh, the word knitting, as you well know, comes from the old English knitan. Okay. C-N-Y-T-T-A-N, meaning to knot. Yeah. Um, what we now call knitting, making a textile by looping yarn using two needles, isn't much older than a thousand years. And it wasn't until, it the, no, it wasn't until the Renaissance that wool was used rather than silk or cotton, which is background. Background. Nothing. I'm not asking you to identify what's fact or fiction there, because that's all fact. Okay. However... Come on, here we go then. Question one. The earliest fragments of apparently knitted material were excavated at the fort of Duro Europos in Syria in 1935 and date from 265 AD. The earliest knitted socks, and we've all had those, come from Coptic Egypt, dating to the 4th century AD, but all these are made using a technique known as nail binding, which only uses one needle. Ah. Nail binding. One needle knitting. Fact or fiction? 
well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to say fact on the basis that if you were making it up, you would have chosen a place name you could pronounce properly. <laughs> <laughs> Question two. We'll come back and, and, and I'll tell you whether that's fact or fiction in a moment. Question number okay. two. During the Second World War, coded messages were inserted into knitting patterns, which were then delivered to Allied sympathisers inside Nazi Germany, who would reply using the same technique. You ever seen a knitting pattern? You ever seen yeah. what it looks like? Mum's a big knitter. Yeah, they are. Complicated, aren't they? Mm. Second World so, War, coded so messages. Code in the knitting pattern. In the pattern. Mm. Okay. And the third and final one I've got for you, there's something called guerrilla knitting, which is not to be confused with extreme knitting. Extreme knitters knit while doing other things, like running or riding on a tandem. In fact, the world record for knitting a scarf whilst running a marathon is held by 55-year-old Susie Hewer. She also has the crochet marathon record and the one for knitting on the back of a tandem. Goodness me. Fact or fiction? Multi-talented lady. Hold on, so you you want me to say whether that's fact or fiction that she's got those three world records? Yeah. Okay. So the first one I'm sticking with fact. Okay. The second one, which is the coded messages... In the knitting pattern. It's a great idea, isn't it? But um, I, no, I think that's fiction. Okay. And the third one, I've got. I've, I've I've known you quite a long time now. I know you quite well, and I'm I'm going to say that is both fact and fiction. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She may be a record holder. You tell. You've told things. the world about my personality now, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> she may be the world record holder for one of those things, but not necessarily all three. Okay. That's my answer All for right. that one. Well, we will come back to that uh, in a little while before the end of the show and just tell you um, just how well you did do. I have a new personal hero. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a man of great imagination with a daft sense of humour, who loves to dress in leather. Oh, that's me. It's not you, I'm afraid. Not this time. His name is Paul Taylor. And he was a man who was inspired by a recent death of a friend of his to raise money for a cancer charity. The way he decided to do this was to get on his 50cc moped, don his leathers and a helmet, and take a tour of the UK to raise money. Right. Here's the genius bit. He spent a long time carefully designing his route from Dorset to Aberdeenshire and back again then down to Worcestershire, right. stopping at all the rudest place names that the United Kingdom has to offer. Oh, right. So, he set off from Shitterton. Yes. He visited Cockpole Green, <laughs> Ass Hill, <laughs> Sandy Balls Holiday Village, <laughs> Titty Ho, Upper Thong, Cockfield, Cockermouth, Twat in Orkney, and ended up in Bellend. <laughs> Normally, I wouldn't laugh at that, 
But because they are all real places, I want to go to Titty Ho. I think they, oh, two weeks in Titty Ho for me. Yeah, that's, absolutely. It, that's got a, a, a quality to it, Titty Ho. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful way to earn some money for a charity. £20,000 he raised. Did he? Well done. Yeah. Him. And they all had a good fanar <laughs> fanar exactly. about it. Very and you, you could follow his journey on the old social media and every so often there'd be a picture of a tatty old moped in front of a sign for Titty Ho. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. How wonderful. A tatty old moped in front of a Titty Ho sign. Right then. Put me out of my misery. How badly have I done on this week's pub quiz? Oh, well, okay. Um, so... I, I mentioned that the earliest fragments of uh, knitting dated back to Syria in 265 AD and also to Coptic Egypt around the 4th century. But these were all made using a technique known as nail binding, where mm. you knit with one needle. You said that was a fact. Mm. If I had a bell now, I'd ring it because you've got a point. Hey! It is a fact. During the Second World War, coded messages were inserted into knitting patterns, which were then delivered to Allied sympathisers in Nazi Germany, who would reply using the same technique. You said that was a fiction. Mm. Ding that bell again. Another wow. point. Two out of Goodness two. Just me. Uh, of course, the, the, one day we will get into talking about uh, the use of... Because the, they used Navajo. Uh, Navajo Indians, the Americans used Navajo Indians in sending messages because so few of the Nazi Germans would be able to speak Navajo Indian. And also Welsh was used. Welsh oh. was used a lot in coded messages. But anyway, that's, that's a, a separate little tributary which we won't go down today in our Oracle. Meanwhile, the third and final question uh, about the extreme knitters and the world-beating Susie Hewer, <laughs> who holds the world record for knitting a scarf whilst running a marathon, uh, also uh, has the world crochet marathon record. That's yeah. crocheting whilst running a marathon. And the one for knitting on the back of a tandem. You said that was both fact and fiction. I'm well, feeling three out of three here. Come on, well, tell me. It's, it's three out of three. I can to, feel it. You've got to elect, elect one of those. Fact or fiction. Which one? I'm going to say faction. Faction. Well, you've got half of it right. Because it was fact. All three? Yes, yeah, she did all three. Extraordinary oh, yeah. lady. Susie Hoover. Um, who crocheted whilst running a marathon and uh, knitted on the back of a tandem and also holds the world record for knitting a scarf whilst running a marathon. Uh, well done. Well done to her. And well done to you if you got three out of three and you didn't cop out and say the last one. Was. <laughs> Join us again next time when we should be talking more rubbish for you at the far end of the bar. Until then, from him, goodbye. And from me, it's goodbye. That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at thefareendofthebar at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers.